Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I explore the weird and potentially wonderful world of DMT. DMT, or dimethyltryptamine, and similar psychedelics have been used by indigenous peoples for healing, development, spiritual purposes, and the like for thousands of years. Western science is now exploring how this molecule might be used to treat modern mental health issues. So Reed and I just sort of skimmed the latest science, not even sort of, we actually skimmed the latest science, share some of our personal experiences. It's a good one, so buckle up. Please actually wait, before you buckle up and enjoy, go and leave us a review. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to the show, YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like, smash that subscribe button, as the kids say, Uh, write comments. We love hearing from you folks. And of course, the five-star reviews um, make me happy and assuage my uh, low self-confidence. Just kidding. Sort of. All right. Enough weirdness. Now you can buckle up and please enjoy. Reed, I have a quote here from the patron saint of dimethyltryptamine, Terrence McKenna. Uh, He has a lot of fun quotes. This is one that uh, I like a lot. And he has a fun voice. He does. uh, Maybe we'll have to hear your Terrence McKenna impression, but I haven't heard his voice enough to give a reliable impression. Here's one, though. DMT raises all the questions in a hurry. It's so intense and so oriented toward the other and the visual, and the hallucinogenic, that it isn't really like a drug. It's more like an event that you ran into. You just came around a corner, and there was the unspeakable. He's so poetic. He is. <laughs> you know, Terrence McKenna is like the the OG psychonaut. Uh, right. There's this 20-minute uh, talk out there on YouTube about by him uh, about the DMT experience, where he just kind of remarked on how no one knows how to describe this thing. So he proceeded to just take it over and over and document his experience and think about it, integrate it, iterate on it, and then came up with this conceptualization. And And there are some fun quotes that come out of his mouth about um, DMT. He's the one who coined the term machine elves. Yeah, the uh, the world like the crystalline self bouncing basketballs. I think he <laughs> he describes them in a, in a lot of different ways. But um, yeah, and the machine machine elves being an example of these entities that people can encounter while on DMT, and that's something we'll get into uh, in this episode as well. But yeah, in case we ha- you haven't figured it out, folks, today we're going to be talking about DMT um, and in its various forms talk about 5-MeO-DMT, and uh, all things that we can in the short time that we have related to it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, where shall we begin? Machine elves? Let's, uh, maybe with a, like a what is DMT. So I mentioned the name dimethyltryptamine um, that uh, is found in ayahuasca. So our listeners will have heard probably of ayahuasca. We've talked about it a lot on on the podcast, but, um, sort of the active psychedelic ingredient in ayahuasca. Uh, but that's not the only place it's found. And there's, there's some evidence to suggest that we produce DMT endogenously, right. In our bodies and that it's released in, um, 
at certain times, like some people speculate childbirth, um, near death experiences, flow state experiences. Uh, but yeah, any more on what is DMT? Well, you know, a couple besides ayahuasca being a popular term these days where I, uh, in the kind of quicha linguistics means spirit and wasca means vine. So spirit vine. You also have this Netflix documentary uh, about Rick Strassman called the spirit molecule. That's all about NNDMT. Mm-hmm. So NN dimethyltryptamine is a classic psychedelic um, found in ayahuasca as one of the ingredients, the main psychoactive ingredient and also ingested in other ways, um, like inhaled DMT, inhaled 5-MeO-DMT, and also coming down the pipeline in our world, in mental health, uh, in clinical trials for depression and a variety of other conditions. But DMT is uh, an agonist that, um, you know, like other classic psychedelics, the 5-HD2A receptor primarily, but also some 2C, 1A activity. And by itself, um, well, the half-life depends a lot on how you ingest it because DMT gets chewed up by the monoamine oxidase system in your body and you've got to either inhale it to get a bunch really fast before that chews it all up or take an MAOI to prolong the experience as in ayahuasca. I was going to say, and that's kind of one of the miracles of ayahuasca, uh, that it's this ancient brew thousands of years old and been used for thousands of years. Um, and it combines those two things, like the, the root and the vine, one of which has the MOI. How did they know? How did they know? <laughs> they were doing, doing chemical lab tests thousands of years ago, apparently. There's some funny videos on YouTube. Like I've seen one of a tiger or two rolling around in like ayahuasca vines. Um, and the video says it's because they happen to ingest these two plants being grown, like that happen to be growing near each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if it's, if it's uh, accurate or real, I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> Tigers tripping. Tigers tripping. And, you know, um, you mentioned that DMT acting on similar receptors in the brain to things like psilocybin and, um, people talk about the, the similarities, the similar signatures of those experiences. Like when you actually experience DMT and experience psilocybin, um, people talk about the, uh, the sacred geometry. They talk about contact with entities and realms, um, with DMT, especially ayahuasca, they call it grandmother ayahuasca. You know, there's this feminine divine energy to it, uh, or experience. And then, you know, with psilocybin, we refer to as like the, the little children. There's still uh, sort of a, an animist energy to it, like that you contact a, uh, an, I don't know what else to call it, but like a, um, a something. It's not just a weird trip. You're in contact with something. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, if you look at the chemical structures of DMT and psilocybin, they're, they're uh, really just different by... Uh, hydroxy group um you know (laughs) you and i were talking about this recent episode on the tim ferris podcast where it wasn't even tim ferris on there it was hamilton morris being interviewed by um 
this kind of ethnobotanist, uh, Potkin, I think is his name. And yeah, uh, it was for his episode, Potkin's uh, podcast, I think Plants of the Gods or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Hamilton talked about how, um, you know, psilocybin and DM- NNDMT are more similar to one another than 5-MeO-DMT and NNDMT are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe a good jumping off point to talk about 5-MeO, um, unless, unless you've got more things to say specifically about NN. Yeah, I mean, uh, NN, we mentioned, is the spirit molecule. Uh, 5-MeO is uh, called the God molecule. So it's, um, it's a slightly longer duration with an inhaled NNDMT experience. You might be looking at 10 minutes. Um, with mm-hmm. an inhaled 5-MeO DMT, you know, more like half an hour, um, perhaps 20, 30 minutes. And uh, NNDMT is thought to be more visual um, and 5-MeO more like rock your world perspective shifting. Yeah, ego dissolve, more ego dissolving. Certainly you can experience ego dissolution on high doses of NN, but, um, you know, there you, you see people sipping on a you know, an NNDMT vape pen at a, at a festival, but you probably wouldn't see people, you know, dancing around on 5-MeO. Yep. Yep. Was it Hamilton's episode where, uh, on, I think it was on Bufo, 5, Bufo Alvarius, uh, 5-MeO DMT, mm-hmm. where, um, the way they, the, the way they depicted it was a little bit frightening to be honest, because someone was doing it doing 5-MeO from a shaman by a river and then was like then down on the ground shaken around by this river <laughs> mm-hmm. that I thought wasn't the I mean nature is a great set and setting but um if there's a river one foot away um yeah maybe not by <laughs> a giant body of water yeah fast moving body of water either yeah the and and people often describe the 5-MeO experience as uh I guess a kind of a different, so I'm just thinking about it from the therapeutic perspective, um, obliterating your sense of self so that you feel one with the universe, one with God, true ego dissolving, um, can be really destabilizing for some people, destabilizing sometimes in a useful way, but destabilizing sometimes in a not so useful way, especially if they don't, uh, aren't using it in a, uh, a, sort of a deliberate, thoughtful context with attention to intention setting and, uh, and then the setting itself, like you were talking about, maybe not next to a river. Um, so it's a powerful medicine and, you know, it's often referred to as Bufo because it, in at least one of the ways 5-MeO is, is harvested is from, uh, the glands of the Sonoran desert toad, Bufo alivarius, these, uh, alkaloids in the toad. And that's, you know, we bring up Hamilton, one of, he's kind of this evangelist for saving the totes, that 5-MeO is relatively easy to synthesize in a lab, he says. And uh, that even if you're trying to ethically source 5-MeO from these toads, um, not everyone is. And because it's become so popular, uh, we're really putting the the ecosystem of these toads at risk. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a conversation with Hamilton in New York at the Horizons Conference conference really briefly about this because i was curious if there are maybe other alkaloids in the venom of the toad that uh have modulating effects or moderating effects on the 5-meo and, and if so it might, it might not 
might it not be important to consume the natural 5-MeO versus the synthetic? And and he said in true Hamilton Morris fashion that, uh, no, he has isolated all of them, all of the alkaloids. Mm-hmm. He's, he has personally used them in isolation. <laughs> yeah. um, and he said they were just, they just made him sick. They, were, they weren't really psychoactive. Yeah. And uh, I like his perspective on the whole synthetic versus uh, plant derived or plant animal fungi derived, um, where he talks about like psilocybin, for example. Um, most clinical trials are using um, synthetic psilocybin. And there was one person recently dosed um, in an FDA approved trial using plant derived. And you know, at, uh, at Numinous, we have a bioscience lab in Canada that's working on that same thing, you know, a plant derived, I mean, fungi derived psilocybin, but, uh, Hamilton will point out that in true, like set and setting fashion there, um, what really dictates the varieties of the experience is someone's beliefs of whether or not synthetic is bad, for example, and, uh, fungi derived natural, um, origins would be better. And that matters. And when you're going into a, an amplifier of what's in your psyche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying like, I prefer natural whenever possible, but I also take a very practical approach of, uh, yeah, let's save the toads <laughs> and let's study like, like Hamilton was telling you, let's study the other things and see what's going on. Yeah. I think it's, and it's a practical approach um, from a, from a couple of different perspectives, practical from a sourcing and sustainability perspective, practical from an ethical perspective about our impact on, you know, animals and fungi and plants and, and environments and ecosystems, especially as psychedelics become more popular. And as, and as, you know, we're in this industry where we're trying to bring the healing properties of psychedelics combined with therapy to as many people as possible, um, we need to take a, I mean, we are certainly at numinous, we are, but taking a hard look at, um, at sustainability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the five MEO experience being like ego dissolving and, um, and well, I think it's interesting to look at what the studies say, because there was this mm-hmm. one study I stumbled upon, um, I don't know, a number of months ago or last year that compared 5-MeO to high-dose psilocybin and the subjective experience. Um, and mind you, this is like um, data from 20 individuals um, receiving um, Bufo alvarius from the toad with 5-MeO um, at a retreat setting in Mexico. And um, 75% had a complete mystical experience. Um, and, uh, when compared to a prior psilocybin study of 30 milligrams of psilocybin, let's say three to four plus dried grams, um, depending on the strain, of course, but, um, the intensity of the effects were similar. The, uh, 75% of individuals in a high dose psilocybin study had a complete mystical experience and, uh, you know, so if you look at it that way, um, the numbers look similar, but the thing is the 5-MeO experience over half an hour is a lot more compressed. That's mm-hmm. why, um, like Terrence McKenna says in some of his uh, talks on DMT in general, it's like being struck by metaphysical lightning. Right. 
I'd be curious about a factor analysis of those two groups because the you can have a total score and the MEQ of a mystical experience, but there are there are several different like subs you could call them subscales, I guess, of what add up to a mystical experience. And I, I'd be curious to know if there are certain aspects of the mystical experience that are more prominent with five MEO, like ego disillusion, and maybe less prominent yeah. with the high dose uh, psilocybin. You know, I think we could we could answer that. I just have kind of a partial answer because there's a another study that looked in more detail at the mystical experience after 5-MeO inhalation mm -hmm. in a, also a naturalistic setting. And um, in addition to the life benefits after, which I can talk about, uh, on the MEQ, the two main things that stood out were um, ego dissolution and oceanic boundlessness. Um, mm. And these were correlated to the more ego dissolution and this like boundlessness you experience, the more uh, like positive benefits in life, like life satisfaction ratings, less depress depression, less stress you had. And overall, um, you know, there was an increase in mindfulness in general for everyone and a decrease in psychopathology, mm -hmm. even four weeks later. Those correlations are, are the ones I think that we find across the spectrum of psychedelics that we're using to help treat things like depression and anxiety and PTSD is uh, that there seems to be a correlation between feelings of oneness, feelings of transcendence, of uh, you know our egoic state, um, and improve at least improve life satisfaction. So. Many roads lead to, to, to the Rome of, of wellness, but uh, it seems like yeah. some of these roads are, start to be consistent across these different substances and uh, treatment groups. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm of the opinion, and again, this is, this is personal opinion based on the data and experience, uh, is that the shorter the duration of a psychedelic the less likely you are to have um, truly difficult experiences that, uh, you know, that with lasting distress, perhaps, because it's over so soon. So if you look mm. at uh, some of these 5-MEO studies, um, there was one in like 2018 that showed 37% of participants had um, a challenging experience um but that was even including the slight slightly challenging um ratings um but there's some ayahuasca studies that'll show 50 60 plus plus percent mm -hmm. because it's it's a long thing you're you got to buckle up you yeah. can't exit that <laughs> right yeah and i'm so i'm also curious then with the short duration we, we've talked about how long psychedelic journeys tend to have chapters and sometimes mm -hmm. those chapters change depending on setting variables like uh, the music changing or, um, you know, guidance and prompts from a facilitator. And so, yeah, I'm curious if it is typical then for something like NN or 5-MEO to have a single chapter because it's shorter. Mm -hmm. And maybe that reduces the potential for these difficult experiences because sometimes the difficult experiences because of a chapter change and you'd start all of a sudden descend into something that is really, really hard for you. 
Yeah, I think I think there's something there. And it may not be that the chapters are non-existent on 5MEO or NN, but mm-hmm. like in a six-minute NN trip, um, good luck teasing apart the chapters like right. in a six-hour ayahuasca experience. So like ayahuasca, you know, which you know, we've talked about, uh, mm-hmm. I've experienced many times and, you know, you ingest it, you're there for 30 to 40 minutes, depending on this, the concoction, um, could be quicker. And then some perceptual changes happen. You might notice some shaking, some vibrations, some synesthesia, some, uh, closed eye and open eye hallucinations. But then like, there's often this, uh, passage through some challenging uh, material like confusion, fear, uh, where your psychological defenses seem like impaired. You're not able to um, control things like you might in day-to-day life. Um, And some traumatic things might come up. You might have some insight. Um, And then there's this chapter often, and it's different for everyone, of purging, like moving energy by shaking, yawning, burping, crying, throwing up. Um, and then often after that is when people break through into this expansive state, like a spiritual realm, the peace, the ecstasy, the understanding, the oneness. And as it wears down, there's this like reintegration into your body, into the normal world with a new perspective, perhaps. Yeah. And those, so those features of a psychedelic journey, um, again, I have a lot of curiosities and these are testable variables, I think, but uh, I wonder if it's that hero's journey that need, we need, we need those various chapters of going through the ordeal and returning, um, in order to have the therapeutic effect that we're seeing, which is one of the things that has me skeptical about some of these companies that are trying to produce psychedelics that, that don't have the psychedelic experience. Yeah. So I think that's, that's definitely a risk if you don't have the challenging experiences, but, um, but what's interesting is those same benefits of like openness, mindfulness, uh, decreased uh, depression and anxiety, um, increased life satisfaction. You see them not only on 5-MEO um, and lasting like present still a month later, but you see it with NNDMT somewhat. Like you come out of an NNDMT experience, even though it's like it could be a six minute um travel through a kaleidoscopic fractal tunnel um you can come out with this sense of like like ecstatic self-confidence and uh you know some new insights and Mm -hmm. like there there is in with nndmt if you look at the studies i think it's like um 80 to 90 percent plus have an encounter with an entity and most consider that to be benevolent or helpful, like a guide. Um, and I mean, we could talk about this, but they, they take the form of, of a lot of interesting things <laughs> that have some common signatures from the medicine that um, it's not only entities, but these common themes of entities. Let's talk about it. Cause those, the common themes are not only things you read about on psychedelic, you know, psychonaut forums or on in Reddit, it's things that have been surveyed and studied that it's, there are certain themes to the, to the entity encounters that uh, have people thinking. And as people have thought for a long time, 
what's happening? Like, is this just common because we have a common, common neurochemistry as human beings and this compound affects our neurochemistry similarly <laughs> so that we all have the same kind of dreamlike experience? Or are we being, is DMT a key to an, an extra dimensional realm <laughs> where these, these beings exist? Um, and why is it so similar to alien abduction reports? You know, when people talk about what it's like to be abducted by uh -huh. aliens, uh, the DMT experience can sometimes be similar. Um, and I'm smiling as I'm saying these things because I'm, as I've said on the podcast, I am a, a natural born skeptic. So my, my first reaction to things like this is to not believe them. But my personal experiences with, uh, with DMT have been um, on track in line with a lot of these themes and the entities that I've encountered have been um, almost always benevolent. I will say, and we, we will talk about some of the, the risks of, of DMT usage. I have encountered some not so benevolent entities and had some very, very frightening experiences. Uh, maybe just one on, on DMT. And was it a useful one? You know, the one I'm thinking of was useful in part. Not, it wasn't, um, useful. F uh, how do I want to say this? Like, I think I was able to make use of it. Um, yeah. but, but basically I, I had, um, I'd had some very, very positive experiences that like, like the ones you were describing, encountering these sort of benevolent elfish entities that were giving me advice and, and reminding me of things like that I am enough and I am good and uh, related to the intentions that I was bringing into the experience. But then there was this one where I entered a, a, basically a demonic cave that was really frightening, you know, and, uh, and the entity I encountered was, um, I, I, the, the name I gave this entity was the devil jester because it had oh. sort of a, sort of a demonic sort of Joker like appearance. And, um, it was there to humble me. You know, it was there to say, you think you are in control of this thing you call your mind. Um, you're using this medicine. Uh, you think you can navigate it. Let me show you how little control you have. And then it was sort of a, uh, you know, a roller coaster through the, through the bowels of hell. Um, and mm -hmm. I came out of that, I came out of that just feeling very humbled. And it's something that on the, the psychonaut wiki, you know, or the psychonaut, uh, forums, they call a hyper slap, uh, where you kind of get, mm -hmm. you know, a little too eager in the psychedelic numinous space and, um, you get humbled by, by the machine elves. Steve got hyper slapped. I got hyper slapped. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, and it, it sounds pretty characteristic of, uh, many people's description of both ayahuasca and, uh, these other DMT uh, varieties and routes of administration, like um, mostly benevolent, sometimes scary, but um, like we talk about in our psychedelic therapy trainings and everything, um, you can make meaning out of all of this. And there's a lot of uh, value in that process and that question of why is this in my mind or getting curious about why it's there. And like, you got to, a nice dose of humility out of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, why is this in my mind? Uh, stay curious, stay open. All the things we tell our, our clients when they come in for, you know, ketamine assisted therapy, everything that we train clinicians to do when we're training them to do psychedelic assisted therapy was so helpful for me in navigating this experience and making sense oh, yeah. of it afterward and integrating it.
Yeah, I have a, a DMT ayahuasca story back at you. This is actually my last ayahuasca ceremony um, mm-hmm. in a far off land um, where, you know, mid experience, it was a rather potent concoction, I must admit. And, and I was warned about this and, you know, having a fair amount of experience with that medicine, normally I'm, I'm not going in with much trepidation or, or fear, but this time I got to admit, I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> really bracing myself. Um, and, uh, one of the experiences, the entity experience that stood out to me the most was I'm just like sitting there on my mat, like, you know, alternating between sitting up, meditating and laying back, uh, kind of riding the waves of this experience. And then, um, right behind me, there's this big window. It was indoors, but in a beautiful nature setting. And there's this window and it felt like this is open eye visuals. It felt like I was underneath an ocean for a minute, which I've heard other people describe. Um, and, but then this experience morphed into, um, these praying mantises, um, flying from the distance, coming up to this window right behind me. And they turned out to be rather large. They were like black colored and much larger than a human. And they're Mm -hmm. just sitting there on the other side of the window. And I'm like, good thing they're on the other side of the window. Um, but then they just go through the window, the window dissolves, and then they're right above me. Mm -hmm. And I remember even like chuckling a little bit, like, um, good thing I have tools (laughs) and good thing I, uh, can remind myself to surrender because this would be terrifying Mm. if I didn't have that attitude because, and, and then the praying manti praying mantises, I think is more accurate. Um, came up and started picking apart pieces of my body and just like chucking them and they were dissolving. And then I was just left as this soul. And it felt rather amazing actually in, because I wasn't resisting it. I wasn't fighting it. Um, and I don't know what the meaning of that was that whole, like, um, taking my body and chucking it. Like we could, I have some theories, but the big lesson I, I learned or the big reminder I got was, uh, you know, thank heavens for the practice of surrender <laughs> and, mm. uh, and, uh, just being able to, uh, relax into this, um, along for the ride and not fight it because that would have been, um, an ugly fight if I were to try and defeat these, uh, praying mantises and get them out of my mind. Yeah. Or my experience. It was kind of funny, um, when you were telling me about this experience, and then we found uh, some survey data about entity encounters, and um, and one of the common entities that people encounter is something that's insectoid. They even mentioned mantises, I think. In this, oh in yeah, this. it's even in Rick Strassman's book because I went back and looked at the spirit molecule, mm. um, where he talks about um, in studies on average at least half of volunteers receiving NNDMT. Um, entered uh this freestanding different existence and uh where there were intelligent beings entities aliens guides helpers and they take the form of quote clowns reptiles mantises bees spiders cacti and stick figures (laughs) and reports of these beings seem to be unique to the dmt experience yeah i've met most of those (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh yeah, clowns. Yeah, it's like the ayahuasca circus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that ayahuasca circus. That that exercise, Reed. I just want to sort of underscore that exercise and surrender because I think it's it's one of these therapeutic variables that has become so useful with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy because a lot of what causes our suffering is our attachment to control and our effort to our our efforting right. Our, our effort to control our experience. And certainly there's a balance between control and surrender, but um, reminders and experiences of the bliss of surrender are tremendously therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting with someone in a, an ayahuasca retreat. This is in a country down south. Uh, and after, it was the morning after a very intense um, ayahuasca experience, probably like night two of three of this retreat week of dosing sessions. And um, she had had this experience of uh, a hummingbird flying in front of her. And just and it was a beautiful, awe-inspiring moment. But then the hummingbird comes up really close. And it was big and had this giant pokey beak and then it stuck that giant pokey beak into her chest and went mm. into her heart <laughs> and <Holy> then <laughs> started pumping it up. And it was frightening, but it was also invigorating. Like there's your deflated, defeated heart um, mm-hmm. from all the traumas and experiences you've been through getting pumped back up by a giant hallucination of a benevolent hum- hummingbird. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. So, um, DMT, it's, uh, it is wild stuff. Here's, here's another, you know, study for you. This is NNDMT, mm-hmm. like, uh, how many people, like 30, 40 people, a UK study, like out of university of Greenwich, um, 40 milligrams inhaled DMT. I think, I don't know if it was inhaled or, um, I think it was inhaled and, uh, 94% had encounters with otherworldly beings. Um, 100% were connected with another world. 50% felt some kind of telepathic communication from the entity, um, mostly on the topic of like cosmic insight. Um, Like it could be love for others, for self, oneness, sometimes like an insight on the game-like nature of reality, which is interesting. Mm. Um, And... uh, this paper described them as like cartoonish or clown-like. And one was a multidimensional moth. Others were serpentine, octopoid, insectoid. Um, some were humanoid. Um, and there might there were some like dancing lattices and sentient geometries. And most in this experience believed that they were intrinsically kind and saw them as teachers or guides. Yeah, I think we're going to learn more and more as... We can. I love that you're citing these studies because there's the anecdotal reports of entities, and now we're getting these uh, sort of em- empirically designed studies to sample entities. And I'm, I just wonder how important the encounter with the entities is going to be for the therapeutic effect. We, you talked about the mystical experience, but you can have a mystical experience without uh, an entity encounter. It just it's so interesting to me that it seems fairly unique to DMT. Um, although people do talk about encountering spirits or entities on uh, psilocybin or um not, i'm not as sure about lsd though entity encounters yeah 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Maybe in another follow up, we can look at those. Uh, we can mm-hmm. look at all of these in one fell swoop. You know, comparing the varieties of the psychedelic experience, because you know they certainly can occur, but there are signatures, there are unique characteristics with each psychedelic medicine and there's this huge variation based on our own uh, set and setting and neurobiological and psychospiritual makeup right so Reed, i think maybe we ought to talk a little bit about um risks of dmt and 5-meo dmt uh we've been talking about some of the the benefits or some of the reasons people seek it out some of the reasons it's being studied um in the therapeutic space but you know, I think of Michael Michael Pollan's book title, How to Change Your Mind, and his new Netflix special. Go watch that, How to Change yeah. Your Mind. Um, but there's, there's a play on those words on how to lose your mind. Mm-hmm. And there have been people who have used a lot of psychedelics or even just one psychedelic experience who have been psychologically destabilized. These, these medicines, or you could call them compounds or drugs or whatever, are not for everybody. Um, and so they're, they're the common risk factors that we talk about when we train our clinicians, like if somebody has a history of psychosis, either personally or in their family, that they ought to proceed with caution. Um, if somebody is doing them without proper guidance or proper intention, or if they are overusing a psychedelic, I think you shared with me, uh, some anecdotal reports on a forum of people using DMT multiple times a day for multiple days in a row and, and basically becoming psychotic. Yeah. What was that? Uh, what was that called? It was uh, spunions. <laughs> there was a term, a new term I learned by mm-hmm. reading this uh, DMT article about the, the dark side of excessive heavy use, um, where these forums will call it being spun out on DMT, people who become detached from reality after um, usually like inhaling, smoking, vaping, DMT, on a very regular basis, like multiple times a day for a month, for example, there are these high profile cases and even some people who have died um, because they lost touch with reality. They don't have that um, grounding in between. They don't have that, that anchor of a guide or a, uh, or time to integrate and uh, like find your, footing on solid ground and in addition to whatever risk factors they may have had for going in and uh past uh psychedelic uses or life experiences loosening up your um your mind where you're at risk for um psychosis right right so uh, whether or not it's necessary i like to make the disclaimer for our podcast here that um, we're talking about psychedelic medicines because we and i keep calling them medicines because we are in the mental health field but um we talk about them with excitement and with promise but um we also want to make the caveat that uh, we're not endorsing certainly illegal activity we're not endorsing yeah um irresponsible activity we think all people, if you're going to approach psychedelics, ought to approach them with caution and well and be well educated. Uh, that being said, I'm also a supporter of the liberated consciousness movement, and I think um, people should be able to alter their consciousness for the reasons they want to. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll put a pin in that. 
And I think it's it's probably worth talking about the ayahuasca diet for a few mm. minutes as well um, when we're on the topic of safety because confusion abounds out there. Um, but first, I'd like to insert another Terrence McKenna quote as an intermission because uh, I think it's relevant to this next um, topic is uh, he said once, the beliefs of a would Toto shaman and the beliefs of a Princeton phenomenologist have an equal chance of being correct. And there are no artibers of who is right. Here is something we have not assimilated. We have been to the moon. We have charted the depths of the ocean and the heart of the atom, but we have a fear of looking inward to ourselves because we sense that that is where all contradictions flow together. Mm. So, I mean, the point is, if, if you ask people how to prepare for ayahuasca and uh, how, how much you need to follow a strict diet and get off every single medicine, you'll get two different types of answers. One is like, if you don't get off your meds, you don't follow the diet and you take this psychedelic, your brain will explode and you'll die. And then you'll get something on the other extreme. You don't need to get off any of your meds. It's just a bunch of BS. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it is worth kind of pointing out that this ayahuasca concoction that consists of DMT, like from a, a plant such as, it can be a number of different plants like Psychotria. Um, and then uh, an MAOI, monoamine oxidase inhibitor, to make the DMT bioavailable to the brain to keep it around so it can cross the blood-brain barrier and have its effects. Um, because of the MAOI in this concoction, there's concern about uh, eating tyramines in foods because tyramines um, are also, like DMT, are also metabolized by this monoamine oxidase system. And if you inhibit it, you can get too high a tyramines and you can have hypertension or even mm -hmm. in, in um, you know, extreme cases, a hypertensive crisis, um, even a risk of stroke in theory. This is something we have to navigate as psychiatrists because the original class of antidepressants before SSRIs, before tricyclics were MAOIs and they're damn good medicines. They just come with them some serious dietary restrictions. And what kind of foods contain those um, tyramines? Well, it's uh, it's interesting. It's fermented foods, um, cheeses, but a lot of variability. Like if you look at cheddar cheese, depending on what kind, it's like you might have in a portion five milligrams or 40 milligrams of tyramine. Um, blue cheese um, is going to have 25 to 30. Gorgonzola, though, like one milligram. Beer, you could have zero, you could have 20 milligrams. Chicken liver, a ton. Um, avocado, uh, you'll hear, don't eat avocados leading up to your ayahuasca ceremony because they have a couple milligrams of tyramine. Um, sauerkraut, banana peels. Um, but uh, so if you look at, if you're on one of these psych meds, um, an MAOI, MAOI, MAO inhibitor. Um, if you are on one of those and you eat uh, six to eight milligrams of tyramine, you'll have elevated blood pressure, nausea, vomiting. So you can see where the concerns come about. If you have 10 to 20 milligrams, you could have a severe headache. Mm. 
severe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but the thing is the thing that people don't really realize about ayahuasca is it is, a so ayahuasca is an, is a reversible MAOI and the pharmaceutical ones are irreversible. Um, examples would be selegiline, um, you know, there might be uh, like Marplan, Nardil, Parnate. Um, and that means that it takes two weeks for you to get your MAO capacity back. But reversible ones like ayahuasca, um, like found in plants like Harmala alkaloids, harmine, harmaline, um, uh, those are commonly found in ayahuasca or there, what gives us a lot of information, um, that people don't realize is there's this medicine in Europe as an antidepressant. It's approved that happens to be a reversible MAOI like ayahuasca. It's called meclobamide. And if you take that, you don't have any dietary restrictions, hmm. zero. Um, so, and they even say that, a uh, hundred milligrams of tyramine can be safely ingested while getting treatment with, um, with this, uh, meclobamide. Um, and that they even studied it with giving up several hundred milligrams of tyramine that you would be very, very hard to get. Um, so in reality, my conclusion is, and I need to give this the big fat disclaimer <laughs> is, uh, um, the dietary restrictions have a lot more to do with psychospiritual prep than, you know, physiologic prep. But I'm thankful that, that so much attention is paid to it because when you go experience ayahuasca in ceremonial settings, these are often not medical professionals, they're medicine shamans. Um, and so, so I think it's great that they're saying, absolutely get off your Prozac. Um, even though, you know, if you were to do it like in a laboratory based setting with medical professionals, you know, we could navigate a hell of a lot of, uh, dietary considerations and con meds. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, maybe that's part of the, the future of some of these, but, but, uh, that's just some kind of, uh, debate. I wanted to shine some scientific light on. I love that. So, but the, the council of getting off your SSRI isn't, I always thought that was because SSRI use could uh, blunt the effect of something like ayahuasca, or is there is there a risk of serotonin syndrome? Is that one of the concerns? Yeah, so so that is uh, that is one of the concerns with uh, Prozac, for example. Prozac being the the SSRI with a long half life, mm -hmm. like days. Um, there's even a you know, just to give an example, there's even a Prozac weekly out there on the market that's approved to be taken once a week, but it's not any different of a medicine. It's just higher dose of the regular Prozac. Um, but yeah, the, uh, making serotonin more available and, uh, is, and what, uh, ayahuasca does the DMT triggering a release of serotonin from these five HT receptors, um, is another concern of like, hypertensive crisis and serotonin syndrome with both that hypertensive crisis and some autonomic instability, mental status changes, um, some other motor movement symptoms, um, which would be, would be, um, 
relative, quite rare at regular doses, but it's definitely because they're not anything to mess with. Um, because who knows how much they're getting when they consume ayahuasca and we're mm-hmm. not like systematically assessing someone's risk and, and tolerance and, and serotonin syndrome is not something to mess with. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, this conversation is making me think of Benjamin Malcolm, the spirit pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Never met the guy, but I, his, his, uh, the stuff that he's released has been pretty useful in answering some of my questions about, um, you know, considerations about indications and contraindications when taking, uh, modern psychiatric medications, um, when you are interested in also using psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, uh, no, he's, his content is great. And, uh, to try and sum, sum it up like tyramine the dietary thing that people try to avoid hits uh, the neurons. And one of the things it does is it s- causes the neurons to spit out some norepinephrine, which would raise your blood pressure. Um, and MAO inhibitor comes along and prevents the norepinephrine from turning into its metabolites somewhat. So it's also more available that way. And then, uh, you know, you have these, um, you know, it's all interconnected with the serotonergic system and the norepinephrine flowing around your bloodstream and, and blood pressure. And the fact is, if um, and they've done this, people on DMT, people on ayahuasca, their blood pressures have been measured. Like there was this study, it's been like a decade or more, where um, ayahuasca was given to people, blood pressure measured. Uh, their um, Their blood pressure increased maybe... 10 to 15 MMHG, um, peaking by a couple hours in, one to two hours in, and then return to baseline. Um, so if you can tolerate uh, mild exercise, this is what the MDMA protocols kind of kind of say is, um, as well, because MDMA has stimulant properties, increases your uh, heart rate and blood pressure. If you can handle some exercise, you can handle the transient increase of blood pressure, heart rate from ayahuasca, from MDMA, from ketamine even. Ketamine, yeah, that's what I was thinking. But if you have yeah. high blood pressure to begin with, you got to be careful. Yeah, and of course, it's one of the, one of our screening criteria, at least for us on the ketamine side, that uh, if you have un- uncontrolled blood pressure, then yeah, we're not going to mess with that. Yeah, and you know, you could get into all sorts of other details like what what is known about what ayahuasca does, like increases your, um, well, it decreases your body temperature at first, followed by a little bit bigger of an increase. Um, not that significant. It's not like hyperthermia or anything, but, um, you know, maybe people can relate to that experience. There's also, um, cortisol release. There's some prolactin release, some growth hormone release, um, just acutely during that experience. Yeah, so much left to learn. So interesting. Uh-huh. We're coming up on an hour, Reed. Is there anything else that you want to make sure our audience hears about with respect to DMT? Yeah, let's see. Um, well, I think uh, I think we've covered uh, quite a spectrum of uh, DMT anecdotes and learnings from the literature, but. Um, 
Yeah, I'm excited that these clinical trials are coming. Um, we're seeing companies studying uh, 5-MeO-DMT even for depression. You know, we're hoping mm-hmm. to be a site for those. And uh, the ones that are coming seem to be in, in inhaled. There's some debate, like Beckley, for example, in the UK is studying testing a couple different formulations of 5-MeO-DMT, like a liquid in a nasal spray or a powder form that also goes into an intranasal administration and uh, tweaking the, like, like a benzoate um, uh, tweak to a 5-MeO just changes slightly the onset, the peak, and therefore the experience. And they're wondering what is both the most practical to give in a clinical setting and the optimal experience for better outcomes. So um, it's an exciting time to be in uh, psychedelic research and mental health, that's for sure. It's one of the things I'm really excited about is just medicines like DMT being able to increase the practical uh, delivery of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We like ketamine because the experience is, one of the reasons we like it, is manageable uh, at a, from, from a scalability perspective, right? A 45-minute to one-hour psychedelic experience um, versus what we've been studying in our clinical trials, things like psilocybin and LSD, which is, you know, 6 to 12-hour experience, MDMA, right? Really long experience. So if we can get a lot of bang for our buck in a six-minute NMDMT experience followed by some psychotherapy, then um, that might be one of the paths to scalability and sustainability. Yeah. Um, and one other fun fact or interesting thing to point out is, you remember that DMT study that came out just a couple months ago um, looking at uh, DMT in both healthy, healthy volunteers and major depressive disorder? Mm-hmm. Um, this, it was like a open label, um, dose escalation study. But what was fascinating to me is they pretty much ignored the set and setting and preparation and integration. Um, so most psychedelic therapy protocols will have multiple prep sessions. Uh, you know, you've done, you've done so many of them. And Mm -hmm. in this study, they met with part. So the participants met with the psychiatrist for a prep session of 45 minutes where they were given information about DMT and its effects and some approaches for navigating it. And uh, they were also, if you had depression, you're invited to discuss your mood symptoms and your depression history. Um, no therapy provided before, after, during. And the set, the setting was a hospital room in a booth with a medical grade reclining chair that was lit with fluorescent lighting and no art, no music, um, pillows and hospital issued linens. <laughs> and then two psychiatrists stood on either side of the chair with a research nurse and uh, research assistants behind. And they gave uh, IV DM- DMT by IV push over 30 seconds to a minute. And they saw what happened. So um, just fascinating to me that, that, uh, this study in particular didn't pay much attention to it. I think we can learn some things from that. Hmm. Yeah. Like I said, so much to learn. Well, we're going to include links to these, these articles in our show notes. So if you're listening folks and you just, you want to take a deeper dive into the science that, um, that Reed's been talking about, take a look at the show notes. 
Uh, it's been a mighty pleasure, Reed Robinson. Fun usual. topic. Um, yeah, we could go on forever about this, but we'd better uh, we'd better call it quits for today. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah. Always fun to chat DMT with you. <laughs> thanks, Reed. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.